You're listening to the new security broadcast from the Wilson Center's Environmental Change and Security Program. I'm Angus Soderberg, and this week, the U.S. is hosting the 10th Conference of State Parties to the U.N. Convention Against Corruption in Atlanta, a crucial international treaty with over 190 parties aimed at combating corruption on a global scale. Corruption poses a major threat to international security. Among other things, it fuels environmental crimes, which undermine climate progress, facilitate environmental degradation, and even finance terrorist activities worldwide. To shed some light on this connection, today's episode features highlights from a recent Wilson Center event titled Combating Green Corruption, Fighting Financial Crime as a Driver of Environmental Degradation. The event took place in September in partnership with the State Department, the Embassy of the Principality of Liechtenstein, and the Basel Institute on Governance, and featured Richard Nephew, the State Department's coordinator on global anti-corruption and the president of this week's conference in Atlanta. Here's Ambassador George Sparber introducing the event. The main purpose, in my view today, is to shine a spotlight on how massive a problem corruption is in connection with environmental crime, how we can mobilize here in DC, but also globally, to address it and what the tools are that we have at our disposal and what are the tools that we actually need to do that. We are less than three months out of the Conference of States Parties to the UN Convention Against Corruption, which will take place in Atlanta, Georgia in December. And I would like to come out of today's event with a clear idea of what we need to do in the run-up to that conference. Environmental crimes are hardly trivial. The U.S. Treasury estimates that between 7 and $23 billion in proceeds are generated from wildlife trafficking alone each year. For context, that means wildlife trafficking nets the third largest profit of any illicit activity worldwide. Corruption fuels trafficking and other environmental crimes, which then finance illicit activities, hamper development, and erode efforts to combat biodiversity loss and climate change across the globe. Recognition of this fact has produced a shift in focus toward prosecuting the organizations and rooting up the systems that enable corruption, particularly in the environmental space. Now, a whole host of civil society organizations, government agencies, and multilateral institutions are involved in tracking, capturing, and even prosecuting individuals and groups involved in environmental crimes. But this has not been an overnight shift. As noted by ECSP Director Lauren Reese, NGOs such as WWF, the Wildlife Conservation Society, the Environmental Investigative Agency, and others have been taking action to combat corruption associated with environmental crimes for some time. The environmental crime and corruption space has come a long way. It was not that long ago that it lacked any substantive international attention. But as the Basel Institute's Yuhani Grossman noted, that's just not the case anymore. So the first thing I, I wanted to note is that um, as as uh, Ambassador Spaba and Coordinator Nephew already mentioned, we're, we're doing this event in the lead up to the, the conference in Atlanta. Mm. Uh, and uh, one of the things that, that I've, I've learned uh, earlier this week is that there is an astonishing 15 proposals for side events on environmental mm. corruption in the Atlanta UN Convention Against uh, Corruption. Conference of State Parties. So this is not an environmental conference, right? Mm-hmm. But there's 15 proposals for side events focused on this intersection. So 
uh, I think at least in our sort of nerdy little world, we're becoming quite mainstream, which is wonderful because four, four years ago when the first resolution was adopted on this issue in Abu Dhabi in 2019, that was not the case, right? Those of us on the anti-corruption side struggled to, to understand these sort of soft issues related to conservation. And, and I dare say, uh, I don't know if you'll agree with me, that the conservation community was also a little bit apprehensive about mm -hmm. talking about corruption. Mm -hmm. so, so we've come a really long way in those four years. But what exactly is this nerdy little world at the intersection of environmental crime and corruption that Yohani mentions? Well, Andrea Gaki, director of FinCEN at the U.S. Treasury Department, addressed that question in her remarks. Environmental crimes result in significant harm to local ecosystems at a time when the world is marshalling its efforts to combat climate change and threats to biodiversity. Such crimes um, include a range of harmful activities, including wildlife trafficking, illegal logging, mining, and other forms of illegal resource extraction, and illegal fishing. These crimes not only threaten fragile ecosystems, but they're often related to other illicit activities, including corruption, terrorist financing, money laundering, human trafficking, or drug trafficking. And environmental crimes are attractive to criminals. The crimes are relatively low-risk activities that promise high reward, largely because environmental efforts are so limited. The demand for trafficked wildlife products remains high and criminal penalties are not nearly as severe as they are for other illicit activities. In fact, many critical countries in the supply chain for trafficked wildlife products do not criminalize this behavior. After Director Gaki's speech, the conversation shifted its focus to the regulation of environmental crimes and how that space has evolved to where it is today. Former FinCEN director Himamali Das discussed the emerging actors and mechanisms that currently regulate environmental crimes. Um, I just want to note that, you know, from my perspective, the AML CFT framework is actually critical to enhancing transparency, as, as Richard Nephew said, and that's actually fundamental to ensure that there's a well-regulated uh, framework for ensuring that financial institutions are aware of and uh, understand financial crimes typologies, uh, red flags and indicators related to nature crimes is fundamentally important. Focusing on efforts to prevent bad actors from acting anonymously and hiding behind shell companies and opaque vehicles is incredibly important as well. And ensuring that law enforcement and financial institutions and other stakeholders work together is incredibly important. And that's what we did from a FinCEN perspective. Um, again, as the speaker said, it's a whole of government effort, first of all. And FIU's financial intelligence units like FinCEN play one part in the overall effort with law enforcement agencies, with national security agencies, agencies focused on anti-corruption efforts, and others as well. And I think the fundamental piece of all of this is, as governmental actors, uh, the importance of collaboration and coordination across all of the actors within government is incredibly important. I think, as Ambassador Sparber also said, it's a whole of society effort. Yeah. Um, the private sector plays an incredibly important role from a financial institution's perspective in terms of having resilient, strong, effective AML-CFT compliance programs. And I think that NGOs also play a critical 
uh, role as well in terms of their investigative efforts, as well as their use of open source intelligence to be able to mm-hmm. better understand typologies, efforts, and actions going on by bad actors with respect to financial crimes as they're linked to nature crimes as well. Former Director Das also outlined the important role that governments play in creating awareness around environmental crimes so that financial institutions can comply with existing regulations and report suspicious behavior. The information developed by these institutions actually helps governments and law enforcement target specific actors more effectively. To that end, both Director Gaki and former Director Das pointed to the importance of utilizing public private partnerships for information gathering through the Department of Treasury's FinCEN exchange, as well as other mechanisms. Information sharing is also an important part of connecting what is happening on the ground to the national and international forces working to regulate bad actors, which is often underutilized. World Wildlife Fund's Roberto Troya shed some light on the role of WWF in trying to fill this information gap. World Wildlife Fund has uh, the privilege of engaging in a collaboration with the Basel, Basel Institute through uh, our USAID-funded TNRC, Targeting Natural Resource Corruption Project. The goal of that project has been to unearth and disseminate knowledge concerning the devastating impact of corruption on environmental and conservation endeavors. It aimed to equip equip our conservation practitioners with tools, uh, guidance, and integrate this knowledge into their work. Uh, We have successfully pursued these objectives by forging research partnerships and drawing insights from practical experiences. I bring uh, an angle that many of you have, uh, but it's so crucial. It's the daily, the down to the ground, from the ground up approach, where you go to the field and see how corruption is happening in different stages and forms. And when you have the conclusion that corruption becomes part of the culture and it becomes part of the political culture, and when you conclude um, that, uh, for instance, enforcement, enforcement measures, the, the judicial system has been um, uh, part of that culture, then the, the work comes uphill. Building trust between environmental and civil society organizations is a crucial part of this connection, such as the partnership between the Basel Institute and WWF in Latin America, which Yuhani Grossman pointed out. In addition to this point about trust, Yuhani also offered three other key takeaways from his work in this space, which really helped frame some of the challenges and opportunities that result from regulating environmental crime and corruption. Here's Yuhani on his second key point. The anti-corruption tools, so financial investigations, asset recovery, these sorts of things, uh, are quite well suited to the environmental space. I think we, we've seen quite a lot of enforcement successes But it's not always that easy. What we see is that there is individuals inside, for example, wildlife agencies or forestry agencies that have enforcement authorities that are interested. But the institution itself just isn't focused on that sort of thing. They're focused on short-term, immediate conservation uh, enforcement efforts, which are, of course, crucial. That's, that's what they were designed for. And so when you come in, when you say, here's a different skill set that's needed, you know, this case is going to take three to five years, uh, then that's a very difficult sell. And so one of the things that we've, we've done together, again, with WWF and Traffic and TI, is that we've created a practitioners forum for folks around the world working in this space 
uh, and when with the support of, of USAID and Liechtenstein, actually, for practitioners in this space. And it already has a whole bunch of subgroups, including one on financial investigations, where we try to bring together investigators and get that one, two, three people in each of these agencies that are keen to do it uh, so that they can be supported by their peers in other countries. Because again, this is a foreign concept in most of these agencies. And here's Yuhani's third point. The third point, uh, if you're keeping track, uh, is regards to the prevention side. So uh, on the prevention side, uh, this is a more recently emerging space where we're trying to apply corruption prevention tools, risk management tools to natural resource agencies and SOEs. Um, and so here, I think that the first realization that we made that, that is sort of a, a somber realization basically is that the under under resourcing of environmental agencies that we do as a society worldwide is reflected exponentially in their ability to control their internal corruption risks, right? So we don't allocate enough money to conservation, to natural resource management. Those agencies are chronically underfunded. And with those scarce resources that they have, they're going to assign even less to building in robust internal corruption prevention systems. And here is his fourth and final note. The differences between the types uh, of commodities, types of natural resources are modest. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, I say that with a great amount of care because I'll be heavily criticized by some folks who are deep into the IUU fishing sector, for example. So I'm not saying the sectors are the same, but the law enforcement tools are quite similar. And so it's one of the areas I think that's rife for sort of silo disruption mm -hmm. because there isn't really a lot of sense to have a financial investigator that only does IUU fishing cases and doesn't do deforestation cases, for example. Even though progress has been slow moving, Yuhani was optimistic about the attention that the environmental crime and corruption space has been receiving more broadly. And this attention has also helped out whistleblowers, who are a critical piece of the framework for combating environmental crime. These individuals play a crucial role in alerting governments to bad actors, which can then put the aforementioned policy and prosecutorial mechanisms into motion. This relationship is summed up well by former director Das. First of all, whistleblowers are incredibly important. There's no questions about that. Um, the AML Act of 2020 established a whistleblower program for AML CFT and for sanctions violations. FinCEN is currently standing up that program. Um, it's already accepting whistleblower tips and leads. It's gotten a remarkable number of those. Um, there is a funding uh, stream that's been established by Congress as well to support whistleblower tips and leads that result in a prosecution as well to be able to pay out to whistleblowers. And so that is a critical piece of the puzzle. Diving into the nuances of the intersection between environmental crime and corruption helps illustrate how this intersection actually reinforces some of the structures and groups that are impacting the security and stability of our world. Environmental crimes intersect with a multitude of geopolitical trends, one of which is China's investment and interest in developing countries. In regards to China and BRI, so I think it's it's really fascinating because so we work in Africa and Latin America. Of course, WWF works everywhere. Uh, and what we are seeing, I think, is that the sorts of the increased political uh, pressure that comes along with um, BRI businesses moving in, state-owned enterprises typically moving in, where the the political 
uh, heft uh, of China becomes so significant in a country that law enforcement efforts against Chinese nationals involved in environmental crime as part of these engagements becomes very difficult. So we see that in Africa very much already, uh, and we're starting to see it in Latin America, although not quite as, quite as significant yet. Uh, although presumably as there becomes less to extrapolate in Africa, there will be more of it um, in Latin America. Mm -hmm. Now, what I'm really, f really uh, watching with great fascination is how will the fact that the, the steam is running out of BRI, right? Uh, the, the, the amounts of money that were there before just aren't there anymore. And so I'm, I'm watching with great interest how that will translate into the political power that China can wield in those countries. And so mm. hopefully with some luck, it will mean that uh, the, the protections that are still in, space, in place in Latin America are not going to deteriorate to the state that we have in some African countries. However, there might also be an important opportunity for diplomacy in this space. Again, you know, I think that there's a lot of room for cooperation, particularly with Hong Kong and the FIU in terms of information sharing mm -hmm. around a broad range of issues um, because of their Agmon group participation. Um, I do think that on the broader geopolitical level, to the extent that there is an opening and an avenue for engagement on climate change or on broader biodiversity issues, the extent to which enforcement and financial crimes are linked to that conversation may provide a broader opening around that area as well. Environmental crime and corruption are also intertwined with the global green transition. As we move toward clean energy, transparency in sourcing materials and supply chains will become increasingly important. For example, the corruption associated with mining practices and companies will gain more attention. Here's Richard Nephew on that topic. The conventional power and mining sectors have been vulnerable to bribery, rent-seeking, and embezzlement and other corrupt behaviors for many, many years. Similar challenges do and will exist as we become more reliant on the critical minerals that fuel the clean energy future. In order to get the green transition right, both the public and private sector must proceed with transparency and with integrity. It will be critical for our governance future and for our environmental future. The United States is rising to meet this moment. We're prioritizing the need for anti-corruption elements in the green transition at all levels of the supply and use chain. We continue to provide robust funding for EITI, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, and related implementation in countries around the world. In June 2022, the United States, with 11 partners, launched the Minerals Security Partnership to diversify responsible critical mineral supply chains, maintain high environmental, social, and governance standards, and bring economic benefits to local communities. Over the course of the event, it became abundantly clear that the relationship between environmental crime and corruption is a cross-current that connects important aspects of international security. And in closing the discussion, Ambassador Sparber put this sentiment perfectly. So I think we've really gotten a, a good overview of what we're dealing with and what needs to be done to, to make progress. For me, a key takeaway um, certainly how complex this issue is and that means that we need a real broad range of expertise to, to make progress from biologists to conservationists, from law enforcement to, to prosecutors, financial analysts, accountants, auditors and of course civil society advocates and, and the private sector. Um, in short, um, if, if I look at this um, agenda developed, it, 
looks to me like the emergence of a really new cross-dimensional discipline. A new discipline and agenda that will be taken up at the UN Convention Against Corruption in Atlanta. And we'll leave it there. Thank you for tuning in to the new security broadcast. If you're interested, the full event can be found on the Wilson Center website under the Past Events tab. You've been listening to the new security broadcast from the Wilson Center. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at New Security Beat and visit newsecuritybeat.org.